Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about working with professionals to give them the tools to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And typically on the program, we're talking about what I'll call kind of those hardcore business tools, teaching social media, how do we do direct mail, you know, all of those various things. But I firmly believe that we cannot be successful in business, you know, and in our personal lives if our mental health is not taken care of first and foremost. Um, you know, obviously our physical health must be taken care of, but our mental health is also so very important. And that's why I'm so excited today to be speaking with our guest. So please join me in welcoming John Vespasian to our program. Uh, hi, Deb. Thanks for having me on. Great. Well, let me tell folks just a little bit about you. So John Vespasian is the author of eight books about rational living, including When Everything Fails, Try This, Rationality is the Way to Happiness, The Philosophy of Builders, How to Build a Great Future with the Pieces from Your Past, The Ten Principles of Rational Living, Rational Living, Rational Working, How to Make Winning Moves When Things Are Falling Apart, Consistency, the Key to Permanent Stress Relief, On Becoming Unbreakable, How Normal People Become Extraordinarily Self-Confident, and his most recent book, Thriving in Difficult Times, 12 Lessons from Ancient Greece to Improve Your Life Today. So again, John, welcome. Thanks, Deb. Great. Well, you know, let's start with the, the premise of what exactly is rational living? You know, you, that is the, the underlying theme in everything. But what do you mean by it? Yeah, it's, um, it's an approach to, um, to philosophy, to personal development. And this is based on a very simple uh, premise. Which is the following. If you're facing uh, problems in life, you have to make uh, decisions, uh, you have to, do, to deal sometimes with adversity. The, if you take a step back and try to think things through, try to use logic and try to make um, uh, sound decisions, in the long term, you will be much better off. So okay. the, the premise, the, the principle is very simple. The application uh, in practice is extremely difficult. Right. And this is, this is the purpose of my books. Yeah. You know, and, and I think many times what happens is we react, we make decisions um, uh, kind of on the spur of the moment. We don't stop to think through them, uh, you know, and, and maybe it's the situation that we put ourselves in because we haven't planned, you know, all of those varying things. But, but it is, you know, we just make the decision to do something without really giving thought to what is going to be the outcome and the result of those decisions. Uh, yes, this works uh, very well 70-80% uh, of the time because I mean, when you are choosing um, the menu in a restaurant, uh, you don't need a deep philosophy. I mean, as long as you, as long as you choose a re relatively good diet, it's fine. But when you have to make uh, important decisions about uh, your career, uh, your business, uh, your health, um, you choose your life partner, uh, you get married. I mean, when you make crucial decisions, uh, you really have to be... Uh, a bit cool, a bit rational, uh, more than um, than you usually uh, have to do for small decisions. And the, the whole purpose of my books is to try to increase uh, our ability to make uh, good decisions. And this is very difficult. So what I've the, the methodology I use is just to present uh, dozens and dozens of stories mm -hmm. of people. I mean, real people who have um, dealt with problems, difficulties, uh, and sometimes they have made very, very intelligent decisions, very good decisions, and sometimes catastrophic decisions. Mm -hmm. So I try to learn from stories because I think that uh, human beings learn um, the fastest and the best and the best from stories. Right. Uh, otherwise, uh, principles can be easily forgotten. Stories usually they are never forgotten. Mm -hmm. Well, and we can put ourselves in the place in the story, um, you know, and it, so then it makes sense. We're, we're thinking about, it, oh, I had a similar situation or this was a decision I would make or something. And so it really does tie us into it. And, and as you said, we learn much better from those type of examples. Yes, and um, 
Uh, one thing I have to say is that um, uh, I started to write uh, books uh, about personal development out of frustration. Okay. And this is something that um, I have to explain because when you when you read um, most uh, books about psychology, personal development, they are very much um, uh, vague, uh, at least to my taste. They're mm-hmm. quite vague. Uh, uh, they don't give a specific explanations. They don't have a specific examples of real people. It's very much mm-hmm. uh, a bit um, uh, abstraction. And I've been reading these kind of books for decades. And at a certain point, I, I got a bit um, disappointed, uh, mm-hmm. dissatisfied. And I thought, OK, I want to write the kind of books I want to read, which are books uh, based on history, based on facts, based on real situations. And uh, since nobody was writing this kind of book, so I, I thought, OK, then I will have to do it myself. And I started to do this in uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. And, and then um, uh, I write books, the kind of books I want to read. I'm happy that uh, other people also like them. But basically, the criterion I use is something I, I cannot find in the market. I, I cannot find uh, this kind of stories, this kind of um, approach uh, mm-hmm. to personal development. And this is why I write these kind of books. Right. You know, and, and as you mentioned, a lot of the personal development books are vague, you know, and, and I, I tend to call them the kumbaya books. You know, you're just supposed to put it under your pillow and maybe it'll make the world all better and, you know, all of those things. And, and then it's frustrating because what they talk about doesn't work. Um, you know, and, and because it has been too vague, it hasn't given specific examples. And then, you know, when, when you're trying to make yourself better and it's not working, well, then that just makes things worse. Yes. Um, if, you, if we can define uh, human intelligence mm-hmm. as the ability to, uh, to recognize patterns and to, uh, to actually to develop uh, new patterns. Okay. And uh, stories are very important because when you read a lot of stories about a subject, about uh, I don't know, choosing a career or dealing with adversity or, or getting out of uh, severe sickness, and you see a story after story and you see the principles, then you basically internalize the principles mm-hmm. and they stay in your head forever. So when you are dealing with uh, with a problem in the future, uh, you will be able to react uh, automatically. You will be able to react making the right choices because the stories are in your head. Right. So this is, is very important to internalize the stories and the principles because when you have to make a crucial decisions, sometimes you have no time. Right. You know, and, and when you kind of have that foundation, it does allow you to make better decisions when you do have to make them rapidly. Yes, and um, another thing I want to uh, mention is that I'm very skeptical about um, the classical approach uh, to personal development because you you get one of these books and you always get the same message. Uh, you need to have a goal, uh, you make a plan, and then you follow the plan. I mean, simplified, uh, I'm grossly simplified, this is what you get. And the truth is that um, when you look at history and you see many biographies, many successful people, you realize that uh, many of them didn't have a plan mm-hmm. or didn't have a, a clear goal. They have some kind of ambition, but uh, they didn't have this, um, uh, uh, I would say, linear approach to say, okay, right. I want to be a, a CEO of General Motors. I mean, this kind of stuff doesn't happen in reality. So we have to be also skeptical uh, about this linear approach because uh, human life doesn't work like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in many cases, we stumble upon those those things, you know, whether it's that you get fired, so you have to decide, um, hey, I'm going to be a business owner, or am I going to be a CEO at that company or at that company, or, you know, personal relationships, should I date this person or that person? You know, it, 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 you're, you're right, it wasn't, well, on, you know, this date, this will happen, and on this date, this will happen. You know, and I always love the, the people that say, tell me what you want to be five years from now. I don't know. <laughs> and, and you know, it, 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 there's so many variables that there's absolutely no way to say that unless you're so general that you're saying successful and healthy and, you know, all of those things, which again comes back to the kumbaya. Yes. And let me just give you an example of one of the stories from my books. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the story of uh, a painter. His name was uh, Diego Rivera. And he's one of the most famous uh, Mexican painting, uh, painter and um, uh, artist in the 20th century. I mean, he, he also made a lot of uh, paintings in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And Rivera, um, the career is fascinating because the guy, um, he was, um, uh, I mean, he came from a poor family in Mexico and he wanted to become an artist. 
So he went to school, to art school in, um, in Mexico City, and then he got uh, a scholarship to go to Europe because he wanted uh, to develop uh, a modernistic style. So he went to Paris. He, he hung out in Paris for a couple of years. And it, this was in the, in, the, um, in the 1920s when there were a lot of innovations in painting in Paris in 1910, 1920s. Mm -hmm. So he hung out with all the big names in painters and he tried to imitate uh, different, different styles. He tried uh, impressionistic, uh, then he tried expressionistic, then he tried um, uh, surrealist. I mean, he tried everything and he failed totally and completely. After two years, he didn't manage to sell one single painting. So he was in total despair. Mm -hmm. and he was going to back to Mexico to try to find a job uh, uh, in, in a factory because he, he wanted to give up painting completely. He couldn't, um, he couldn't find his voice. Uh, his style, and when he was going back to Mexico, uh, he stopped by in um, in uh, Florence, uh, in Italy, uh, just for a, for a, for a couple of weeks. He stopped mm -hmm. there. And he started to look at the paintings from the Renaissance, uh, from the um, uh, late Gothic paintings, and then he discovered uh, the paintings of um, of the big masters in uh, in the Italian painting that painting on the walls, what you call a fresco painting, right, which is frescoes. basically mm -hmm. paint, painting on, on, on plaster. And mm -hmm. uh, he studied the te technique. It was a technique that was almost lost in history. So he spent uh, two weeks there in a monastery mm -hmm. learning how to, uh, how to do it. And then he came back to Mexico. Uh, when he came back to Mexico, he had the idea, okay, maybe I could do this uh, myself. And he couldn't, not, he couldn't get any commission because he was not uh, known, but he got a small commission to paint uh, the walls of a school a school building, I mean, just for a few, um, a few hundred dollars, mm -hmm. and he imitated uh, the fresco techniques that they were using um, uh, 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. And he painted, I mean, it was a bit like cartoons, his style, he used very, very bright colors, it looks mm -hmm. a bit cartoonish, but it was very original, and he did this in the 1930s, and then everybody went to see the school and said, wow, this is amazing, mm -hmm. never seen anything like this. So the guy, uh, with almost within two, three years, he became the biggest uh, artist in Mexico, he started to get commissions to paint uh, walls mm -hmm. in in, uh, in churches, um, in uh, public buildings, um, everywhere. And um, ten years later, he was a big name uh, in in, uh, in painting. He got commissions in New York. He got commissions in San Francisco. And just because this guy, um, he had a goal, but he didn't know he didn't know what to do exactly. I mean, he just uh, hung around. He tried different things, and eventually, uh, by trial and error. Uh, he found uh, a niche in the market, that uh, something that nobody else was doing. And this is how most people become successful. Right. It is not that they have a plan, I'm going to do this and this and this, and I take these five steps uh, to greatness. This is very unrealistic. Right. Well, and so many times what we're having to, to do is make a plan when something has gone wrong. Um, you know, so so talk about that. Why, you know, are there different steps that somebody takes when really the world has just come crashing down around them? Uh, yes, uh, you have to be calm, which is easy to say. And um, uh, my favorite uh, story in this case uh, comes from playing chess, because I use uh, um, very often I use examples from chess because um, it's fascinating to see that uh, chess players. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, top chess players, they are very logical uh, when they play chess, right. they, they try to make study. But uh, sometimes you look at their lives and they are a complete mess. And I find the contrast uh, fascinating because how mm -hmm. can someone be so superbly logical and then uh, completely chaotic? Right. But you can learn a lot about how chess players play and how they live. And um, one of the um, uh, answers to this uh, question, what do you do when you are when you're in a situation where you really don't know what to do? I mean, you have so many problems, you have so many um, so many debts or so, so many uh, inconveniences that you are completely lost. And I want to give the example of the advice that uh, Ninsovich used to give. Ninsovich was a, a top uh, chess player in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. uh, he never became a world champion, but he was very close. Okay. Um, Ninsovich, um, um, he gave um, uh, exhibitions in many different countries. Uh, he was able to win um, many um, chess games uh, and people got the impression that he was actually not doing anything. He was mm. just um, um, a slow. He was sometimes he didn't have a clear strategy. And then uh, people asked him, but how could you win? Mm -hmm. I mean, you are not a uh, genius. You are not uh, very creative. Uh, you don't have uh, magnificent ideas. So how could you win? And the guy said, look, it's the same in life. 
sometimes uh, it happens very often that you don't know what to do because you have so many options and there are so many factors mm -hmm. that you are completely lost. And you cannot just invent a goal uh, out of nothing. I mean, you have to be um, based on real facts. So what Nisovich used to do in his case is say, look, when I don't know what to do, and this happens very often, the only thing I need to do to get a bit better mm -hmm. is to reinforce my position. And uh, he would play chess in a very, very slow, very defensive way. But say, look, if you don't make uh, big mistakes in life uh, or in chess, and you just reinforce your position little by little, eventually you will find a way. And ah. this is a very, a very good recipe uh, for a crisis situation. I mean, you don't need to find a solution overnight because sometimes it's not possible. Mm -hmm. But try to cut, try, try to stop the bleeding mm -hmm. and try to, to improve things little by little. And eventually you will get there. Mm-hmm. Well, and then it does allow you to, when, you, when you've slowed down like that, to make those rational decisions as opposed to, oh, my gosh, I have to do everything and I have to do it right now. Fair enough. And, um, and you, then you get uh, this perspective. And this is another idea that um, I want to emphasize uh, in the, today because I, I come to, the, to this very often in my book saying, look, um, the main reason why uh, human beings make so terrible decisions and sometimes um, uh, very, very expensive uh, mistakes mm -hmm. is because we lose pers perspective. Okay. And uh, it's just player usually looks at the game and says, look, this game is going to last uh, four hours. Mm -hmm. I have this to make this number of moves. So he has an idea of the, of the range of movement. Mm -hmm. But human beings, we are very emotional because to a certain extent uh, we're still uh, animals and we panic. Mm -hmm. uh, when we see a lion, we see a, a bear, we see a, a predator. And uh, we, we have this panic uh, inbuilt in our heads. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes uh, we make very stupid decisions because we look short term. And we say, okay, we, I need to fix this immediately because tomorrow I need to do this. And then we make a completely stupid decision that is going to have uh, wide-ranging consequences. Mm -hmm. If you want to uh, improve the quality of your decisions, uh, the only thing you need to do, which is easy to say, it's difficult to do, but the only thing you need to do is to try to think in terms of a lifetime. Because you are going to live normally 80, 90 years, perhaps 100 years. Mm -hmm. And if you think in this uh, range of, um, of uh, perspectives, say, I'm going to live for 90 years. Mm -hmm. uh, my life is going to last this long, and then I want to uh, be happy, I want to be healthy, I want to have an interesting career. And then you don't become so anxious, because anxiety and stress... Uh, inevitably lead to stupid decisions. Right. And sometimes uh, when, you, when you dig yourself on the ground, under the ground, it's very difficult to, uh, to get out. So try to be calm a little bit. Try to think in perspective because most problems that today we, we see as, um, as very pressing and very annoying, if you look at it uh, in the long-term perspective, um, they are really minor things. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that is so true is, you know, when we stop and really think, Okay, if I do this, what is going to happen? You know, and 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 that does come back to the you know what what might happen in five years from now. You know, all those various things. You know, we we laugh about some of the spur of the moment decisions that people make. You know, I I know people who literally got married after a first date. They didn't think that through. Now sometimes it worked. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not gonna, but but you know, they didn't stop to think is this a person that I want to truly spend the rest of my life with or even the next 10 years? Um, you know, or we take a job that seems like it might be a good job, um, you know, and, and, and we don't stop to think about it. I uh, work with people who have been off work for a while and, you know, what happens is the desperation sets in, you know, and, and they think I have to accept any job that comes along you know, and, and it's understandable. They have to eat. They have bills to pay, all of those various things. But more often than not, they accept a position that is not a good position. You know, they aren't they aren't even thinking what's going to, you know, is this going to be a good job in five months, let alone, you know, five years or anything like that. It's just I have to, to take whatever comes along right now. So how, you know, how can somebody get past that point? Well, um, again, coming to the to the example of Nisovich, um, you can become desperate uh, for good reason uh, because uh, if you are severely sick or you have uh, pressing debts, you have mm -hmm. to meet the mortgage or you have to uh, to feed uh, your children. Uh, obviously, uh, the number of choices is reduced because uh, you need urgent solutions. Mm -hmm. But um, the first step in this kind of situation, the first step is to stabilize the situation. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to get uh, to a situation where you're not desperate, which right. might mean uh, sometimes, okay, you take a bad job. I mean, there is no dishonor in any job. You just take uh, what you can. Right. Um, you stabilize your situation. You get an income. Uh, you get a place to live. Uh, you get your children to school. And after a few months, hopefully, you can stabilize your situation uh, sufficiently, and then you can think uh, a bit bigger. And then you can uh, find something better or you can move uh, to get a career or to, to, to develop yourself. But um, it is not a shame to be desperate because sometimes, I mean, when, right, when, you, are, when, you, have, when you have bad luck, I mean, you get uh, an accident and you have no fault. It's just that uh, you're unlucky and this can happen to anyone. Uh, okay, fine. Try to stabilize the situation. Try to get um, uh, your health back. Try to get a job. Try to, to get an income. And then you build from there. Uh, mm-hmm. There is no overnight magic, and sometimes uh, you have to start from scratch uh, when you make a mistake and when you are very unlucky, and this can happen to anyone. And um, yeah, being desperate uh, is not a dishonor. What is a dishonor is uh, to keep desperate uh, forever, mm-hmm. because uh, you have to to go um, out of desperation mode and to get into a, some kind of um, uh, as a perspective. Mm-hmm. And this takes sometimes a few months, sometimes it can take a year, a couple of years. But eventually you will get uh, to a level uh, where you can make better decisions and, uh, and hopefully uh, to build your life uh, from there. Right. You know, and I like the philosophy that you said that it's okay to go ahead and take a temporary job. You know, and, and, and I think that ends up being sometimes the problem with people is they, they want either something perfect, which there's, that's not going to happen. You know, they are just not going to have something perfect or, you know, they, they think that, that there is shame in taking a job that is maybe less skilled, less, you know, less education, all of those various things. When, you know, if they're taking that job to feed their family, there is no shame in that at all. Yes, and let me give you an example um, from one of my books. Uh, it's a story I like a lot. It's uh, the story of a filmmaker. His name is um, uh, Kislovsky. He died um, uh, about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, he was one of the most famous uh, Polish directors. He made mm-hmm. uh, very, um, very successful movies uh, for about uh, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started uh, in life uh, making huge mistakes because um, uh, he was in Poland at the time of uh, communism. Uh, he went to school, but uh, he quit school because he didn't want to study. He wanted to hang around, so he quit school. He he became he was almost illiterate, mm-hmm. and he started to get uh, bad jobs. He got jobs in construction. Uh, he got jobs um, uh, in, the, in the in the railroad, uh, doing different things. And at a certain point, when he was already, I think he was already 19, 20, 20 years old, he realized that uh, he wasn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was continuously um, on the brink of uh, starvation because he, he earned very little money. So eventually he said, I have to change my life. Mm-hmm. But of course, it was very difficult to catch up because he lost um, basically his primary education. He could barely read. Mm-hmm. And then um, what happened is uh, he was totally lost. And uh, one evening, uh, we went to a theater. Uh, because, I mean, in those, play, in those days, uh, there was still theater in a small city. So I went to a theater in the evening, and he said, okay, maybe I could be an actor or a producer or something like this. And he got the idea out of the blue. Of course, it was completely unrealistic, because the guy could not even almost not, not read. Right. And then he applied, uh, next year, he applied for film school. Uh, said, okay, maybe I could make movies, because he, he had creativity. But, of course, he was rejected. I mean, he went to the, to the exam and said, come on, you cannot even read. You have no education. How do you want to be a film director? Mm-hmm. So he, um, he got the rejection. Uh, he, he went back to his job in construction. Uh, he taught himself uh, to read well. He read a lot of books. Mm-hmm. He prepared himself uh, for the next year. He applied again for uh, film school. Mm-hmm. Eventually, he was uh, admitted. But he had already uh, five years, six years of um, delay compared to the other students because he mm-hmm. was older. Right. And uh, he had no education, he had no background, he had everything against him. But uh, Kislovsky uh, basically said, okay, fine, I'm late, uh, I made mistakes, but uh, now I'm going to rebuild. And he mm-hmm. spent uh, all his time during those uh, years of film school, these five years, instead of going to parties, of in- instead of uh, enjoying himself like most uh, students do in university, mm-hmm. he spent his time writing scenarios. And he wrote one after the other. And as soon as he finished uh, film school, he immediately got a job as an assistant producer in television, and then he went from there, continuously proposing um, uh, movie projects uh, to television, to uh, cinema studios, and within 10 years, he was a huge uh, success because he was never unemployed. 
-hmm. was always uh, coming up with new ideas. Oh. And he turned himself from, um, from a completely literate, uh, desperate uh, person into a huge intellectual. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see, his movies are very, very, um, very, very intellectual, very, very well done. Mm -hmm. And um, he started, of course, to do a crappy uh, television commercials. He started <laughs> to do a crappy uh, soap operas at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But he was always making a living and getting mm -hmm. better and better and better. And eventually he got the break um, doing a TV um, uh, special. And then he started from there. He got uh, his first movie, then his second movie. Then he went from Poland to France and he learned French. And he lived in France. And in the end, eventually he became a huge uh, success. But uh, the story of Kislovsky shows you what you have to do. I mean, if you are really um, very, very low um, in your career because you made mistakes, which is okay, it's human, uh, try to get some stability mm -hmm. and then the, to change the focus, to try to, try to find um, better opportunities. It's going to take time, but it is possible because many people have done it. Right. You know, and, and, of course, the problem comes in when people give up. You know, they think, well, I'm never going to, be, you know, to be any better. Um, you know, all those various things. And, and uh, you know, and, and they get very depressed. Why do you think that, that so many people are anxious and depressed? Well, we get depressed uh, because um, we cannot see beyond uh, the immediate. We cannot see beyond today or beyond uh, several weeks. And let me give you an example, um, a story about depression, which I find um, uh it's very, very compelling because it's the story of uh, Sigmund Freud, who is very well known to be a psychoanalyst. He was right. a very famous uh, psychiatrist, um, but uh, he had to, to fight at the beginning of his career with uh, a lot of problems mm -hmm. because um, Freud uh, studied uh, medicine in Vienna. Uh, he was not from a, from a wealthy family. He was from a modest origin. He studied medicine and then he, uh, he got a job as an intern in a hospital, I mean, basically making uh, peanuts because it mm -hmm. was uh, lowly paid. He made a PhD uh, thesis. He, he made uh, some research with uh, mice. and uh, was a complete failure. Mm -hmm. uh, he was completely desperate because he wanted to get married. He had no money. Um, there were too many doctors already in Vienna, so he could not really find uh, a good job. And what did he do? I mean, he was uh, depressed at the time. And uh, what did he do? I mean, he was quite uh, somber and depressed. But uh, he realized that uh, the only way to, uh, to get ahead was to do something different uh, mm -hmm. from the, what other people were doing. So he started to look around and say, OK, what can I do? Uh, my my uh, PhD thesis was a failure. Uh, my job uh, sucks. Uh, what can I do? So he started to, uh, to go around, to read newspapers, uh, to find ideas. And eventually, and this is really what uh, changed his life, eventually he found uh, the possibility to go for a week uh, to France uh, to a course, and he went to uh, to France to Paris to see a demonstration in a hospital of, of a guy um, uh, who uh, his name was uh, excuse me now um, uh, okay we'll come later but to to see the demonstration of a French uh, professor who had um, uh, who experienced it with uh, hypnosis so so he found it very very unusual because mm -hmm. it was a very um, a new thing at the time so he went to to Paris for a week. Uh, he, went, he went to a psychiatric hospital, uh, and then he saw the demonstration of hypnosis and said, oh, wow, this is really, this is really um, uh, cute. Uh, he was there. I mean, he could not speak French, really. He could understand more or less what was going on, but he saw the, the results. Uh, and then he went back to Vienna and said, oh, maybe I could do this, uh, because mm -hmm. he's so innovative. Nobody is doing this kind of stuff. And uh, while he was working in the morning in the hospital as an intern, uh, he started the practice uh, in the uh, in the evening in his uh, small house um, to do hypnosis, uh, and it was something. I mean, in Vienna in the 19, um, uh, early 1920s, um, um, nobody was doing that. And then uh, people was okay. Pff, I have a wife who has a problem, and my ch my child is not learning. So they went to to try this uh, hypnosis thing, which was mm -hmm. so uh, so weird. Of course. Uh, I think that Freud knew as little as, as his patients because he was very, really uh, flying by the seat of his pants. But uh, he was experimenting with something new. And he became super famous within a couple of years mm -hmm. because he had a queue of every uh, mentally deranged person in Vienna was uh, queuing to, to have this hypnosis thing, which uh, in the end it was a failure because uh, he could not cure, um, or, I mean, almost no patients. But by that time, Freud had become very clever. I have realized that uh, this, well, this is the way to make money. So mm -hmm. after hypnosis, uh, he came up with uh, association of words, 
Uh, then he came up uh, with um, uh, analysis of dream analysis, and he came up mm -hmm. with completely innovative ideas because he realized that unless I do something different, uh, there is no way to, uh, to make more money. And within 20 years, uh, he built a huge reputation for himself. He was the most famous uh, physician in Europe. Uh, he had a cure in his uh, practice uh, for months. Uh, he did that. Uh, he achieved that basically to get out of his depression. Mm -hmm. get out of his uh, completely hopeless uh, financial situation uh, and he did the right thing. He tried to find a solution by looking around. If he had stayed in Vienna uh, thinking about his uh, poor <coughs> prospects for the future, he would have even get uh, more depressed and eventually he would have been a disaster. He did the right thing, which is to look further. And if you look further, uh, you can get out of stress, you can get out of anxiety and you can get out of depression. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, it's it's one of those things, you know, you, you mentioned in, in your notes to me in the advance that 50 million people in the United States are on an antidepressant medication. Now, there are definitely people who need medication. You know, we're not ever saying that. But I think there are also examples of people who they it's easy to take the medication, um, you know, and and. You know, and, and rather than figuring out how do I get myself out of this situation, it's like, well, you know, I'm just going to take the easy way out. And and again, you know, there are definitely people who need the medication, so we don't want to say, you know, that there's not. But sometimes, you know, it, it does become easier to take the, the shortcut. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, in the short term, um, of course. I mean, it's like, um, I don't know, when you have uh, health problems because, I don't know, you eat too many sweets, is, is hard. I mean, they say, okay, oh, I like it so much. Uh, I will keep on eating sweets and then I take the medication. Mm -hmm. And okay, I mean, it's better to take the medication perhaps than doing nothing, right. but this is not the solution. I mean, you really don't solve the, the root cause of the problem. Mm -hmm. But um, you see, uh, not everybody is so uh, mentally active, so, so I would say so consistent uh, to really find the, the reason for the problem and to solve the reason, to remove the, the reason for the problem. And I wrote a book about this, uh, about um, uh, stress, how to actually solve the stress uh, in the long term. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, the, the recipe that I found in history by, by studying uh, dozens of different um, cases and biographies is that the only way to remove stress, um, and this goes together sometimes with anxiety, sometimes with depression, but stress affects uh, millions of people and there are many of them are on medication, sometimes even clinical uh, heavy um, problems with breathing, with the immune mm -hmm. system. And the only way to solve the problem is to try to reorganize your life, to become more consistent and to remove from your life all the um, inconsistencies that make you uh, chase rabbits in different directions. Uh, okay. And this is uh, something that human beings, I mean, we are very prone to doing that because it's in our nature. We, in the end, we are a bit animals and we, we want to to find novelties and we want to entertain ourselves and we want to chase uh, rabbits and this is uh, in our nature but mm -hmm. unless uh, you try to uh, to organize your life and, and say okay I want to do this and this don't do too many things don't try to chase too many rabbits and especially don't try to run in opposite directions which is something that we all of us do all the time because mm -hmm. we are doing A and then we see some shiny uh, golden thing and say well let's try this and let's try that mm -hmm. and it happens to me all the time I have to remind myself uh, continuously, don't do too many things because uh, there are so many things I want to do, so many things I want to learn. But, but if you want to have, um, I would say, a healthy life without too much stress, uh, you have to cut things off. And this is inevitable and nobody wants to hear this message. But if you want to have uh, lower stress, you have to become consistent in what you want. You have to cut uh, clear ideas in your head. And uh, you have to, to fix um, uh, everything that is not uh, in the big picture. Mm -hmm. Because uh, if you have uh, um, unclear ideas about uh, your identity and then you don't see yourself in a particular way, you, you see uh, you have a very fuzzy uh, idea about what you want. I mean, you, as I said before, you don't need to have a specific goal, but at least you should have a clear sense of direction. And I always mm -hmm. come to this uh, message in my books. Um, if you have a sense of direction and you want to, to go in a certain direction, even if you don't know exactly what you want, but you say, okay, like Kislovsky, he wanted to do something creative. He didn't know exactly, I mean, maybe theater, maybe movies, maybe television, but he wanted to do something creative. 
He didn't, of course, uh, plan from the very beginning to be the most successful European or Polish uh, film director. He didn't plan for that, right. but he went in a certain direction. And this is what can solve your stress um, definitively, mm-hmm. because it will eliminate all the impurities in your life. You will eliminate all the inconsistencies, and it will, in the long term, you will have a life which is more successful and happier. Right. You know, and, and I am one of those people that, you know, on occasion, and maybe more than on occasion, goes after the, the bright, shiny objects. I get distracted easily is maybe the, the easiest way to put it. And it's funny because part of my brain knows set a schedule and keep a schedule. But then there is some bright, shiny object that comes along. And so it's about that mental training to think, no, you know, I'm not going to go, you know, click on, on five videos on Facebook today, you know, or if I do, I have to have this done first. And I think that's one of the things that, that we do struggle with is there are so many distractions out there and, you know, and, and, and just focusing and saying, this is what I'm going to do for the next 10 minutes, for the next hour, whatever. That's very difficult. It is very difficult, and uh, I have found only one way to, uh, to solve this problem. Okay. Uh, so let me give you an example from history that uh, I like very much. I need to take the example of uh, George uh, Simenon. He was a, a, a writer, uh, a French writer, but uh, he was Belgian, a Belgian writer, uh, writing in French. Um, and he died, uh, I think it was 1989, so it was relatively recently. And Simenon, um, uh, he wrote uh, mystery police uh, detective movies, sorry, detective oh, okay. uh, novels. He was mm-hmm. very successful in Europe, uh, not so well known in the U.S., but in Europe uh, he sold uh, millions of books. And Simenon, uh, uh, he traveled a lot. He have, uh, he, I think he got married uh, three times. So he was a guy, a very uh, active uh, person, but he was able to write um, uh, books, uh, these uh, detective uh, novels, he wrote uh, about uh, two per month, and uh, in his good times, in his best times, he wrote uh, four uh, novels per month. Wow. And this, this seems amazing, because uh, you have to imagine that uh, he was traveling at the time. I, uh, sometimes uh, he lived on a boat. He mm-hmm. lived on a boat um, uh, on the canal, because in Belgium and uh, Holland, there are many canals, so he, mm-hmm. he actually went through the, through the rivers with his boat, a small boat, but he lived there with his wife mm-hmm. and a cook. Uh, he would write uh, his uh, novels on the book, and then he put it on the mail, and he sent it to the publisher. And he was—that's a guy who could write uh, basically anywhere. And he—he um, he always got the same question uh, in interviews uh, on TV, on radio. I said, well, "How do you manage to write uh, so systematically when your life is such a mess?" Um, because it was really a mess. I mean, the guy made a mess uh, several times, but um, the answer was uh, clear. Um, he was able to do so much to produce uh, so many books most of them of uh, very good quality, uh, because he reserved the time. I said, look, I work uh, in blocks. Uh, mm-hmm. I allocate my time uh, every day in the same way. So he has his time for writing, his time he wrote in the morning, and he took a walk uh, for two hours, then he came back and made corrections. I mean, he has his routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to have exactly the same routine, but he have a routine. Right. I said, look, my routine is not the best, but it's sustainable. So I can do right. it every day after day after day after day. So in mm-hmm. the end, you pile up and you produce uh, a lot of a lot of uh, output. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, unless you have a routine, uh, you will never have a consistent output. So the message is that uh, this is the only way to, to, to keep away from shiny objects. You need to have a routine, and you have to keep um, to stick to it day after day, year after year, and then you will produce a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, because otherwise, uh, Simenon, if, if he got uh, out of his routine, he was hopeless. Uh, mm-hmm. He would get uh, drunk. Uh, he would uh, go um, uh, on walks and he would not come home. I mean, he would be a complete mess. So this is why he forced himself to follow his routine. Mm-hmm. And he became extremely successful because he was able to follow this routine uh, for many years. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, I remember a long time ago, I was somebody said to me that if you do something for 21 days in a row, it becomes a habit. And, and it's very difficult once we have that habit to not do it any longer. You know, and, and so maybe it is that you spend the first two hours of your day reading and then you spend an hour in meditation and then three hours writing, you know, whatever it is. But when you've done it for so long that it becomes a habit, when you don't do it, things really are off. You know, and, and I just I like that philosophy of doing something for 21 days and that makes it a habit. 
Well, um, yes and no. Because um, when you look at uh, history and you see the biographies of many successful people, mm-hmm. um, sometimes uh, they don't become successful out of a habit. Uh, they just follow some kind of, um, uh, I would say, interest. Uh-huh. And they say, okay, I want to do this more or less. I don't know exactly, but I think this could work. And they just do it uh, sometimes very um, incompetently at the beginning and they become uh, more skilled little by little. And in the end, they become successful. So, yes, um, in the end, you allocate the time. um, But uh, what makes you actually persist uh, in the long run is that uh, you want to develop yourself in that direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I read sometimes uh, articles or books, people recommending a magical routine for the morning, then you have this power breakfast and then you have to do this five minutes of this and five minutes of that. I'm very skeptical. Because mm-hmm. uh, in the end, you develop a routine that is not linked to any goal. Right. You need to have uh, to do. Yeah, you need to have a motivation. You need to have a sense of direction. And this is something that uh, every person is different. Because some people are very good uh, with their hands, and they want to uh, to actually produce. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know. Work with uh, wood, or with uh, they want to build things. Other people like mathematics. Other people like uh, language. So every person is a bit different. And uh, nobody can tell you exactly what is going to be your best routine. It's also the question of energy, because some people like to uh, to wake up early. Some people uh, prefer to wake um, to work uh, in the evenings through the night. So there is no perfect uh, routine. It's just uh, right. for me the the key word is sustainability, and there is only sustainability if you have the motivation. Right. Well, and of course there is the trap that if you have such a rigid schedule. Then, you know, if something happens and throws you off that schedule, you can have problems, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I think of people that I know that are, are authors who, you know, they, they might say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour every day, but then all of a sudden they get motivated and the, the, the juices are going and they write for five or six hours. If they'd gotten stuck on that, I can only write for an hour, then, you know, it, it, who knows what would have happened. So I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that people need to keep in mind is, you know, it, it's okay if, if things kind of change a little bit as long as you still have that good kind of foundation. Yes, um, and um, I just want to, uh, to mention the, the question of... Um, uh, the sense of direction, because it's something that um, you have to really see a few examples to really get it, because it sounds like uh, self-evident, but uh, when you look at uh, how people actually make decisions, it's absolutely um, counterintuitive. Uh, let me mm-hmm. just give you an example. Look at, the, for instance, uh, one of the um, stories I tell in my books is the life of uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I would say the life that uh, nobody uh, is talking about because he is always presented as a genius uh, who was able to do everything and that he that he's had these ideas for uh, machines and he was a painter and he was uh, um, a sculptor. I mean, he was able to do everything under the sun. But mm-hmm. when you look at his uh, biography in, in detail, you see that the guy was uh, certainly he was a genius. But uh, he never achieved uh, too much. Huh? I mean, he com- you compare with uh, other artists or other uh, persons in the same area. Like, for instance, Raphael, who was mm-hmm. a pain- an Italian painter. And Raphael died uh, very young. He died at 37. Huh? Uh, he produced a huge amount of paintings, high quality. I mean, all the half of the paintings of the Vatican, they are by Raphael. They are mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. While Leonardo, who lived to be uh, 67... He produced, I mean, how many paintings do we have for Leonardo? I think there are about 14, 15 paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, he produced yeah, a few paintings. He produced a few um, um, uh, plans for building uh, churches that were never built. Then he, uh, he illustrated uh, some books that were never published. Then he uh, designed some um, uh, buildings that were never built. And that was his life. I mean, trying different things, but never actually doing too much. Mm-hmm. And in the end, uh, when he died, uh, he was not even in Italy. He, he went to France to try to get a better job. And he actually died in France on a um, house that was not his house because he was given a house by the king of France. So basically, he died uh, quite poor. I mean, when he, Leonardo mm-hmm. died, probably one of the greatest geniuses in history. Uh, the only thing he had was a few books, uh, a small piece of land in Italy uh, and a couple of paintings. I mean, it's a joke. I mean, while uh, Raphael, uh, he became wealthy, he became successful, he became uh, a great um, influence in Italian painting. Leonardo uh, was a genius, but he was lost. 
-hmm. And uh, we have to avoid uh, becoming Leonardo's because Leonardo is very nice when you look at the pictures in the book, but uh, you don't want to live like that because his life was a mess. He right. never really got focus. Uh, he never really uh, tried to build uh, a career in any area. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we try to, uh, to be Leonardo, it's an example that people should be told, don't follow this example because mm -hmm. it's a disaster. So this is right. why it's very important to have a, a clear sense of direction. If you want to paint, paint. If you want to, uh, to build houses, build houses. But uh, try to get uh, expertise and reputation in some area because if you try to do everything possible and to follow all these uh, shiny objects, you will finish up, uh, you will end up like Leonardo, uh, destitute, almost destitute, um, uh, dying. Uh, I mean, when he died, he, he actually um, regretted that uh, he never completed anything. I mean, mm -hmm. he, uh, he left so many unfinished projects that is uh, sad. Right. And this is, this is the last thing you want to do. Right. Well, and there is that old saying, jack of all trades, master of none. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of people tend to fall into that is, oh, I can do this, oh, I can do this, oh, I can do this, oh, I can do, and, and they never truly think, what is the, the best thing for me that I can do? Um, you know, and, and we get caught up in having to, to be better than somebody else or, you know, comparing ourselves to somebody else. And I think that's sometimes why we're not happy with where we are is, you know, we, we have to, to match what somebody else is doing, even if it doesn't really match what your passion and what your skills are. Uh, certainly. And um, it's very difficult to escape uh, this temptation because, mm -hmm. um, of course, uh, we are social animals. Uh, we like to, uh, to deal with, uh, with people, to, to, to compare ourselves with them, to, uh, to, be, to be admired, to be loved, mm -hmm. right. to be appreciated. And sometimes uh, you have to realize that uh, if you are pursuing a goal which is uh, complex and difficult, like, for instance, starting a company, which is always mm -hmm. uh, challenging, and you have uh, uh, high ambitions, sometimes you have to take a step back and uh, become a bit siloed uh, or become, uh, I would say, a bit lonely uh, mm -hmm. to follow your goal because you cannot really um, try to please everybody. You cannot really follow all the advice you get from people. Sometimes if you want to do something special, uh, you have to become um, a bit uh, individualistic mm -hmm. um, and to follow your own path because it's your own life. Nobody's going to live it for you. And mm -hmm. uh, when you die someday, hopefully, uh, in the, the, I don't know, when you're 90 or 95, uh, when you look back, you should be proud. And this right. is very important uh, to remember every day. Right. Well, yeah, one of the things, John, that I was wondering as we've been speaking is, you know, I'm in Atlanta. You're actually in the Netherlands. Um, and, you know, I, I just find this all fascinating. Do you, you're, you're, you are, you know, quite the scholar. Do you see that there are differences in cultures with how, you know, we, we you know, are there different cultures that are better at being consistent? Are there better cultures that are better at making those rational decisions? What do you see when you look at, at different cultures? Um, certainly, um, I mean, I have spent uh, the last year writing about, uh, researching and writing about ancient Greece. Right. And um, um, I have to say, what we have inherited from uh, ancient Greece uh, in Europe, in the United States, in Australia, uh, in many countries, this sense of proportion, uh, this sense of uh, beauty, this sense of uh, achievement. And this is something that makes uh, successful every culture. And uh, to the extent that we are successful and happy today and, and uh, in Europe or the United States or Australia or Singapore or Hong Kong, uh, all these countries that are really uh, wealthy and successful is because we still have this sense of proportion, this sense of individual achievement mm -hmm. that uh, was so important for the ancient Greeks. And this is something that runs through all the cultures. And uh, even if um, uh, Hong Kong looks very different from uh, ancient Athens, the principles are the same. Uh, people have uh, respect uh, for each other, they respect uh, private property, uh, they respect uh, free trade, they keep their word. When they give their word uh, they want to do something, they just do it. Mm -hmm. And this is the same in China as in Australia, as in the, um, uh, France or in the United States. There is no difference. We mm -hmm. speak different languages, we, we dress a bit different, we have uh, different hairdos, but uh, the human spirit, when we become happy and successful, is always the same. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, you, you do have a book, Thriving in Difficult Times, <clears throat> excuse me, Thriving in Difficult Times, 12 Lessons from Ancient Greece to Improve Your Life Today. 
What is what is one of those lessons? Well, one of those lessons uh, is that um, uh, we have to be. Uh, um, <clears throat> sorry, let me drink. We have to. Yeah, we have to. Um, uh, we have to be able to deal with prejudice. Uh, this is something that uh, not many people today want to listen because not want to hear because uh, we live in a society which is so uh, tense uh, now with so many crises and those kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. um, we have to be able to, to learn to deal with prejudice and to deal with people of different ideas and nationalities and cultures and religions because um, this is the way to, to build a strong culture, not by closing ourselves in our little city or our little uh, street. I say, okay, I don't care about the rest of the world because ancient Greece was the best example. Um, they had a series of small cities, uh, Athens, um, um, uh, um, uh, I can't remember now, the, the uh, Delft, uh, sorry, Delft, uh, Delphi, uh, close Delphi, to Athens. Mm -hmm. So they have all these small cities. Um, uh, they were quite small. I mean, Athens uh, was never bigger than 300,000 people. So they are quite small, mm -hmm. but they traded with each other. They moved, people moved around. Uh, they built different businesses, they made friends, uh, they got married uh, to different, uh, amongst different uh, tribes and different cultures, and this made uh, a very successful culture. And they always found a way to deal with uh, everybody. They dealt mm -hmm. with the Egyptians, they dealt with the Persians, they dealt with the Italians, and this made the culture very strong. And mm -hmm. uh, they always found a way to deal with people of different ideas uh, without creating uh, aggression. And this is something that uh, we have to find a way. We cannot allow our, our great uh, culture civilization uh, to be driven by fear uh, because right. uh, this has never worked. We have to go back uh, to try to, to build uh, bridges, to build uh, friendship, to build trade and investment across borders because this is what makes uh, a civilization very strong and prevents uh, conflict in the future. Well, and, and ancient Greece, and oh gosh, I'm trying to remember back, you know, when, when I studied it, they truly did embrace every culture that they came across, um, you know, and, and because they knew that they could learn from all of them. And, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, I mean, we, we hear about, you know, when they would sit and just listen and talk, and we've lost that. You know, I, I think we, we have just kind of, whether it's that we're caught up in our own world, you know, and, and what's going on, you know, in our little neighborhood, we forget that there's a big world out there, and, and what can we learn from it? Yes, and um, you see this in the writings of Plato. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, people sometimes, they talk about Atlantis, which is mm -hmm. a civilization that was lost. And the, what we know about Atlantis uh, was written by Plato in one of his uh, works. Mm -hmm. And uh, Plato uh, talked about Atlantis to compare Atlantis with uh, Greece. I said, okay, Atlantis, uh, it was a great civilization. People were very tall. They were very intelligent, uh, they have these great uh, buildings, but they made one mistake. Uh, this is why uh, Atlantis uh, disappeared and Greece uh, continued to thrive. And the mistake is the following. The Atlantis were very close. They live in their island on the Atlantic, right. and they wanted to be isolated, they wanted to be pure, they wanted to be the best, and they didn't want to mingle with other cultures. And the Greeks, uh, they settled uh, for trade everywhere. They did business with everybody. They learned languages. They got married to different uh, um, cultures, to different uh, peoples. I mean, they got uh, a very active and very open culture. And the problem with Atlantis is that uh, they live in just in one place. They didn't want to, uh, to move anywhere. And then the, the level of the sea uh, rose uh, five meters and the island uh, was uh, buried under the sea and disappeared. And the whole culture was uh, wiped out uh, within a week, and it was forgotten and dead. And this is why Plato said, if you want to survive and you want to thrive, you have to diversify and you have to be open. Right. You know, and, and Atlantis was so consumed with that isolationism that, you know, you mentioned, you know, people didn't come in. Well, people also didn't leave. And so it's not like when, you know, when the island, you know, sunk, that there were Atlanteans in other places. They, they were all in one place. Yeah, and um, uh, one of the great, uh, I would say, um, promises for the future is that nowadays many people have this open mentality. They learn the languages, they move around, uh, they want to start businesses. And this is a great um, uh, trend that uh, makes me very optimistic about the future because when you look at the news every day, you can become, um, I would say, uh, very depressed because it's always right. negative. 
But if you look at the big picture, you look at uh, how um, great businesses are being started uh, all over the place. You have this entrepreneurial spirit, not only in the U.S., not only in Europe, not only in Australia. You have this in Africa. You have it mm -hmm. in the Middle East. You have people starting businesses with very little capital, uh, becoming extremely uh, efficient and, and trying to build a better life for themselves, uh, moving to different countries, learning languages, uh, being ambitious. And this is a, a cultural trend that is very, very positive and is going to continue in the next decade. So this makes me extremely optimistic about the future. Right. You know, and, and it does help that we have the technology that allows us to do that. Um, you know, we we can be talking to somebody that are, you know, you're thousands of miles away from me, um, you know, and and we can learn, we can read. Um, you know, I, I'm always very sad when I know that there is someone who doesn't read, you know, even if it's just for pleasure, um, you know, and, and people, you know, here in the United States, we, um, you know, newspapers in a lot of ways are, are disappearing. And now granted, you know, that you get the news online and things like that, but I still like having that physical newspaper and I like having a physical book when I'm reading it. Um, you know, I do read books on Kindle, but to me, part of the, the whole sensation of learning is having that book in my hand, having that newspaper. And you just, you don't get the same thing when you're reading it online. Um, but, you know, technology is definitely allowing people who maybe couldn't have had those books, couldn't read those newspapers, things like that. They can now. And that's what, what makes it so fascinating. Yes, uh, I want to mention one idea from ancient Greece that um, um, it's a very, I would say, very easy to adopt uh, habit. Um, and it can help uh, many people uh, today, uh, the people who are stressed, who are sick, who are um, uh, under pressure. And it's the, uh, the consumption of uh, herbal tea. And when I studied uh, ancient Greece uh, for my book, mm -hmm. I read uh, the works of Hippocrates, who was an, a physician uh, from the 5th century before Christ, and also the works of Dioscorides, who was a herbalist. Uh, famous um, uh, Greek herbalist on the, for the first century. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dioscorides wrote um, several books about uh, herbal tea. Mm -hmm. And I found it fascinating because um, you realize uh, when you study the, the herbalism, uh, even superficially, you realize that uh, it is very inexpensive uh, to drink uh, herbal tea instead of soda, instead of, uh, I don't know, what people drink, uh, right. uh, wine or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, herbal tea is very inexpensive. It's very, very easy to make. You just have to boil mm -hmm. some water and you put some, some blades of uh, tea. And it can really help uh, your health tremendously. can help uh, your immune system. Uh, can help you um, uh, overcome um, uh, allergies. can help you mm -hmm. many in many different uh, conditions. And uh, what I propose in my book um, uh, about Greece, uh, that most people have tried to, to use simple herbal tea, which is easy mm -hmm. to find like uh, chamomile, uh, sage tea, uh, fennel. I mean, these kind of mm -hmm. things you can find in any, um, in any um, uh, shop. Um, I mean, there are different qualities and different prices, but it's very easy to get. And if you right. get uh, the habit, uh, I mean, you don't need to change your complete life, but if you just have the habit to consume herbal tea um, more often and less uh, sodas, uh, you can help your health tremendously because they have uh, minerals, they have um, a lot of uh, beneficial substances. It is very inexpensive. I know it looks a bit weird sometimes to, uh, for people when you, when you order uh, herbal tea in a restaurant, but I have to tell you, uh, it is one of the takeaways from my book that uh, it can really help your life. It can make you less stressed. Just the, the habit of making the herbal tea takes, uh, mm -hmm. takes three minutes. You right. take three minutes of relaxation. You just uh, look out of the window. You drink your mm -hmm. tea. And you, you adopt a lifestyle which is more relaxed and, I say, more uh, thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, John, we are at the top of the hour. And this has been absolutely fascinating. I love this. And you've got a great blog um, so how do people find your blog? Well, uh, it's super easy to find uh, my books on my blog and everything. Uh, if you just type uh, John Vespasian on Google or Yahoo or I mean, whatever uh, search engine you use, you just type uh, John Vespasian, you will find uh, everything immediately. There is a blog, there is their books, there are hundreds of articles, uh, free articles in the blog. There is also a newsletter, free newsletter. So you just type uh, John Vespasian in Google and you will find everything within a second. Great. 
Well, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to sign up because you have um, a, a free newsletter. So I'm going to sign up to get that because you've got such great wisdom that I can't, you know, it, it's really going to be enjoyable to continue, you know, uh, learning from you. Okay, many thanks, uh, Deb. Great. Well, John, uh, thank you very much. I am Deb Creer. I've been having a fabulous time talking with John Vespasian. I am Deb Creer, and until next time, everyone have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.